Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, as we hit our third uh, week in the chapter of Luke, uh, resolve to be ready. This is your redemption is near part two, a follow-up from last week. If you weren't here last week, uh, you may want to go back and, and listen. If you did not hear, because there's a lot of catch-up that I can't cover, I actually shortened last week's text so I could fully engage that and then finish up this morning with the entire text. And, and speaking of that, as I said last week, the return of Christ is one of the greatest motivations, biblically speaking, uh, and that helps you and I walk with Jesus and obey him faithfully that a Christian can actually have. And, and, and it's one thing, I can say that, but it's a whole nother thing for God to say it. And he actually does in a multitude of places. We'll look quickly at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, the day of the return of Christ drawing near. The Apostle Paul, following a description of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, Paul follows up in verse 18 with these words. In light of all that I've just said in 1 Thessalonians about the return of Christ, he says, encourage one another with these words. Paul is basically saying, talk about the return of Christ, know he's coming back, remind each other so that you will live just the same old life. No, so you'll live differently, so I'll live differently. So we start with this this thought of a proper understanding that Christ will return is to make a difference in how you and I live. Now, not only does it affect how you and I live with each other, but it also should affect, and I try not to use the word, word, word should a lot, but I'll use it this morning. It's not to shame you, but to motivate you and to exhort you it should affect how we live with non-believers, especially in the area of evangelism. The certain return of Christ should get us out of our natural bent to be comfort or live in comfort, to not rankle anyone, to share the greatest news ever with our neighbors, friends, family, and even a stranger. I'll just ask this morning, if you had the cure for COVID-19, would you just keep it for yourself to enjoy the for certain cure for the pandemic COVID-19? Would you just sit on that, you and your wife at your house, you and your spouse, you and your friend? Look, I'm just asking the question. No. The return of Christ pushes us out of that comfort zone. Maybe a way to summarize how the return of Christ is to motivate us in a biblical and healthy way, not out of fear. I mean, I grew up in churches, return of Christ, oh, God, he's going to put everything on the screen, and right? But in a healthy way, we can say it like this. The for certain return of Christ should motivate the Christian to live a focused life. 
How will we define focus biblically? Galatians 2.20 tells us, I have been crucified with Christ, meaning we are dead, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what the return of Christ pushes us to live like. Jesus Christ is both Savior and Lord. And the certain return of Christ in makes him in actuality, God wants to use that certain return to make sure he is actually Savior and Lord in our lives. So long obedience in the same direction is what the return of Christ actually does for us. So in light of that, let me give you a quick review of where we've been in Luke 21. It's in your notes here from the previous two sermons of Luke 21. We start with verse 7, which I've titled The Question. The disciples are enthralled with the temple. They love that. Jesus says, everything you see here in this temple is going to be laid down and destroyed. Not one rock will remain. And they go, well, really? And then they ask a question. Well, when will this happen? And what are the signs that this is coming near? So we start with that. Then Jesus answers them, as I said last week, the longest answer he ever gave to a question. Verses 8 through 19, he speaks of birth pains. In the time leading up until the sign appears, and we're talking about the sign in a minute, we are not moving toward an earthly bliss. No, it's going to get worse. And he says very clearly, there's going to be Deception, disasters, desertion, and even death during that time. We are in that time right now, a time of birth pains. And then thirdly, he goes to verses 20 through 24 with his answer, and he talked about the abomination of desolation. Last week, I talked about a dual prophecy, a near future, far future. You'll have to go listen to last week's sermon. But at the bottom line, the next sign in that far future prophecy is what he called an abomination of desolation. It's talked about in Luke 21. It's talked about in Mark 13. It's talked about in Matthew 24 and 25 in the first 13 chapters of the book of Daniel. And it's basically this. There will be a world leader that comes on the scene. He is a friend of Israel's. He makes a pact with Israel to protect Israel because Israel is vulnerable. And then at the three and a half year part of the seven year uh, period, he turns on Israel. He goes into the Holy of Holies in the new rebuilt temple and he calls everybody to worship him and make one world religion. At that point, you can know the text tells us that that is the sign that the coming of the Son of Man is near. And it triggers the intensity in the tribulation. Matter of fact, Revelation 6.18 says, or 6.8 says, once that happens, during that, that tribulation, the last three and a half years of history on earth, one out of every two people will die on the earth. If it happened today, that would be 11 times the 330 million people in the United States. I tried to calculate that and I couldn't say the number. So you can just figure it out and email me. And then again, there's three and a half years until 
the visible return of Christ. So are we caught up here with Luke 21? So now we move into starting in verse 25, which is the coming of the Son of Man. Luke, Mark, and Matthew continue, if you read these parallel texts, continue to get more specific as the time draws near and nearer to Christ's return. At the start of the last three and a half years of the history of the world, as I said, the Antichrist sets up himself to be worshipped in the temple, and he therefore defiles the temple. And then there's this all-out war on believers and Jews throughout the world. And as God's judgment draws near, the earth begins to implode and crumble. Look at verses 25 through 28. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, that's to Christians, to disciples, because your redemption is drawing near. So Luke tells us, Mark tells us, Matthew tells us, Something starts to happen with the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, the question is what? Well, to find out, we can go to Revelations chapter 8 and the Apostle John's vision of the end of the world. He gives us the details about what that something will be. And he says, one-third of the light from the moon and sun and stars goes out. Blow a candle out. You got three candles, blow one out. The earth gets dark. Darkness increases over the world. The world we know is forever being altered. Chaos reigns. Revelation 8 tells us terrible storms happen. Mountains start to explode. He says a star falls and crashes and destroys one-third of all the rivers. He even names that star. He calls them Wormwood. And many people die from thirst because they have no drinking water. Revelation 8 tells us a great mountain is thrown into the sea while it is on fire, and one-third of the sea turns to blood. One-third of every living creature in the sea dies. One-third of all the ships on the ocean are destroyed at that moment. Huge hell and fire that is mixed with blood begins to crash to the earth, one-third of the earth is burned to ashes, and it says all the green grass is scorched. That's the picture here that's taking place at the, near the, right before the coming of the Son of Man. Now, notice in verse 25, it says there's distress. Another word for distress is anxiety from all the people on the earth. Everyone is seeing this. Everyone is experiencing this. And then he says, and there's perplexity. Perplexity is another word for anguish or terror. Actually, a word I found out this week is only used one other time in the whole New Testament. It is, speaks of this overwhelming feeling that knows there is no relief coming 
There is nothing to stop it. There is no hope. One scholar said it is a rare word for a rare time. Confusion and anguish times a zillion of what anybody on earth had ever experienced before. You can't stop it. You can't understand it. You can't react to it because it's so vast and so fast. That's the picture that Luke or Jesus is painting for us in Luke records. Then it says the fear is so great that people just start fainting. They just start falling out. Now I thought, is that possible? So I did a little medical research and I went to the Mayo Clinic's website and here's what the Mayo Clinic says. It says one of the most common reasons for someone fainting is a reaction to a great emotional trigger of fear. And here's how it happens. Your nervous system that controls your heart rate and blood pressure makes your heart rate slow down. The blood vessels widen, which causes your blood pressure to drop, and the body can't deliver blood to your brain, and you what? Faint. There's another way to look at this. That word, some people say, actually means to expire or to breathe out or to die. And that is people will be so afraid, they will be scared to death, literally, in light of what they are seeing and experiencing. The disciples, being familiar with the Old Testament, I think would have mentally thought of the prophet Isaiah's words in chapter 13. That describe, again, a prophecy with a near future and far future, but this is the far future fulfillment. Isaiah writes, Well, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pains and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. And the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold. This is the wrath of the Lord of hosts and the day of his fierce anger. Folks, long time before. Jesus said these words, Isaiah called it. Revelation 9 tells us men will beg God to, to let them die, but they will not be able to die. And, and the Apostle John's vision of Revelation 18 is a description of life on earth during these days. Now, Babylon in Revelation 18 was the near future prophetic fulfillment, and the return of Christ was the uh, far future prophetic fulfillment. 
But he writes here, he describes it. You can read it later for yourself. There'll be plagues, world famine, burned up with fire, weeping and wailing by those who made sexual sin and luxury their God. Business owners will weep and mourn because no one can buy anything. Look, when this happens, Amazon is done. The material stuff that people accumulated to hoard and wallow in just to have the best of everything will be over. All music is gone. There's no marriages. There's no work. It is the catastrophic end of human history. And here's what John writes in Revelation 18.8. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. This is the worst of times. Now, there's also a best of times going on because at that same time, during all this destruction and chaos, there will be, the scripture says, 144,000 believing Jews selected from the 12 tribes of Israel. Revelation 7, Revelation 14 speaks of that, who are preaching the gospel during these last three and a half years on earth. People will be angry with them, Revelation 7, 3 says, but no one will be able to harm them. So here's what John is telling us during this chaotic, awful time, when all this destruction is going on, the people will be hearing the gospel and they will know They will know who Jesus is. They will know what he's about. They will know he is behind this. They will know his return is near, and they will still mostly reject him. Verse 27, we finally get to it after after a whole chapter and three weeks of preaching. We finally get to this final sign. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, with power and great glory. Imagine with me. Majority of the earth is dark or darker than normal. And as Revelation 19 says, the coming of the Son of Man. And here's what it will look like, Revelation 19 says. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The coming of of the Son of Man. Psalms 104 tells us who this is. He, speaking of God, makes the cloud his chariot. Isaiah 19 tells us the Lord rides on a swift cloud. And in Acts 1, we see that he, Christ, was taken up on a cloud, it says, and he will return on a cloud in that same place of Jerusalem. There is no doubt who this is. This is Jesus Christ returning in all of his glory, all of his authority, all of his power, all of his honor. He is coming back just like he said 
he would. To do what? Bring judgment on those who have not trusted him. And two, establish his kingdom along with his people. Verse 28, we mentioned this last week. But just in review, those who are alive at this time and have trusted Christ, the writer says, Jesus says, oh, raise your heads, stand tall. All that you have believed, all that you have went through, all that you have trusted is absolute worth it. You have not wasted your life. So we have the coming of the Son of Man. Now we have the parable or a parable of confirmation of all that Jesus has said. Let's read verses 29 through 33. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, here's what Jesus is doing here. He is simply telling a story to communicate a truth, to illustrate a truth. That's all a parable is. It's a simple story. And it is amazing how scholars and others have read into this or deniers have read into this to make it something that it's not. It's a simple story. And it goes something like this. It's springtime in Jerusalem. It's Passover. And he's standing there with his disciples and he points to a fig tree in Jerusalem that is, is very abundant in that area or all the trees it even says. And he says, see those green buds? When you see those green buds, here's what you know. Summer is near. And that's how you know you're going to see the green buds of all that I've described, okay, and you're going to know that the Son of Man's coming is near. It's as simple as that. So, verse 31. So when you see these things, he says, you know the kingdom of God is near. So we got to ask the question, just to be good Bible students, who is you and what are these things? To do that, we got to go back to verses 20 through 24. You is referring to those who are alive and know Christ when what? When the armies and the far future fulfillment of that prophecy surround who? Jerusalem and the Antichrist is in the temple telling everyone to worship him. The far future prophecy fulfillment of verses 20 through 24 are these things. It is these people of God who will know the kingdom of God is near. Jesus is saying you can't have a kingdom without a what? Without a what? That's right. But the king is coming, so therefore the kingdom is coming. And it is you who will see the Lord coming in a cloud. Verse 32 says, truly, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So again, being good Bible students, we ask questions, don't we? We say, what generation? 
Now this one, it really is amazing what some people have come up with to answer that question. Biblical prophecy with some simple questions is given to us to make things clear, not confusing. Not for, so our imaginations can run wild and we can create tin hats conspiracy theories every time there's an earthquake. Does that make sense? So we ask what generation? Amazing how some have interpreted this. Some say the disciples are this generation and the people that are listening to Jesus talk at the time that he is speaking. They say all this is going to happen in their lifetime. But if Jesus meant that, then Jesus was wrong. And if Jesus was wrong, he's a sinner like you and I. And if he's a sinner like you and I, he certainly ain't coming back on no cloud. Others say that he's speaking of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. That all of those who were there and alive at the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., that's the generation he's talking about. But we know there was no Jesus coming on a cloud in 70 A.D. That was, the remember, the near future fulfillment of the prophecy. 70 A.D. in the destruction of the temple, we said, was just a mini preview of the bigger and greater and last destruction that was going to come. How Lindsay... Some of you older folks, how many of you guys have heard his name, Hal Lindsey, in some way? How many of you have not? Raise your hand. Yeah, everybody under 40. <laughs> I nearly got duped with old Hal Lindsey back in the day. I came to Christ in 1982, and, man, his books were, were smoking it. He's the author of The Late Great Planet Earth. He tried to say this generation meant that it would be the generation that gets to see the birth of Israel as a nation, which took place in 1948. What he did was he looked at this parable, this simple story, this simple illustration that Jesus gave as he just did life with his people. He looked at it as this allegorical, meaning he, he said, when you see the fig tree bud, then you're then seeing Israel become a nation. He just, he just went off imagination. Isn't there, isn't there a cartoon called the Imagination Station? Isn't there something, some kind of deal? That's, that's, that's what Hal did. Again, Israel's birthplace as a nation took place in 1948. His book sold like hot chocolate on a cold winter morning. But that means by 1988, that generation, generationally speaking, is done, and there was no Jesus returning on the cloud. I'm saying to you, don't get duped. Don't believe in conspiracy theories. Verse 32, the generation that sees these things, again we go back to verses 20 through 24, the generation that sees these things who are alive and see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, the Antichrist in the temple demanding the worship of him, you will see the Son of God coming in a cloud. If you and I are alive and we see what I just described happening in Jerusalem at the temple, 
then you and I will also see the Son of Cloud, the Son of God returning in a cloud of the Son of Man. It will happen fast. Boom, it's on its way. Biblically, most people think three and a half years from that point. And we'll see it if we're not martyred or killed first. Lastly, in this text is a, is a wonderful, wonderful, but challenging, and, and uh, I want to put this, um, strong warning to us who are Christ followers in verses 34 through 38. Let me read that for us. <clears throat> Jesus finishes his words with these. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And then it says every day he continued to teach in the temple. This is our application because it was the application that Jesus meant to have after he told everything about his return. Jesus is telling them and every Christ follower afterwards, don't get careless and start believing that that day will never come. Because if you do, that day will make no difference in how you live and what you live for. He is saying apathy about the return of Christ, meaning it's not in the forefront of your mind. It's not in the forefront of your heart. You're not looking for it, praying for it, thinking about it. Will for sure cause spiritual apathy in one's day-to-day -day life. He says those who are careless about the return of Christ will have a life of dissipation. What does that mean? Webster defines it like this, dissipation. The squandering of money, energy, and resources. To put it another way, biblically speaking, you will be a terrible steward of your time, talent, truth, and treasure. If the return of Christ, if you're careless about it, you will waste your time, talent, truth, and treasure on trinkets. You're wasted on this life and not on eternity. When a person, let me put it this way, when a person is wasting their time, talent, truth, and treasure that God gave them to make an eternal impact, it probably means that the return of Christ is not really a strong motivator for them. You could say even a return of Christ or dying and standing with Christ eyeball to eyeball. That it's not really in his, 
train of thought day to day. And then if that's not there, there's a whole laundry list of things that we could probably know about that person. They're not in the Word. They're not praying. They're not living in community. They're not giving to things of eternity. I mean, we just go on and on and on, just the basic Christian life. Those who are careless about the return of Christ will waste their lives. They will hold on to their lives. They will live for this world and not the next. Then he says, that day, the return of Christ will come suddenly. Luke 12, 39 tells us, like a thief in the night. It will come upon you quickly, he says, like a trap. This is a word picture. That word trap is a word picture. Look, have you ever, raise your hand if you've ever loved catching mice. When you're, men, if your wife says, this is mice in the house. Have you loved going after them? I'm like, I am your man. I have bought all, look, probably 20, 25 different kinds of mousetraps, especially in Ohio when we lived in a field, built a house in a field. Had them all the time. But this is when you get to see, you're looking around the corner, corner of the garage, and there they are. And that little, that, little, that little mouse is just eating so leisurely and carelessly on that cheese or peanut butter that you put there. Just... gone now it's funny but this ain't funny this trap ain't funny that's how he describes it and it's over the exhortation comes again in verse 36 jesus calls the call to faithfulness in the midst of the intense pressure that you are experiencing you and i experienced in this world to not abandon ship he says, stay awake. And I want to say to us for the 10,000th time since this church was planted, no one stays spiritually awake alone because I want to close my eyes and go away. But I need money to grab my eyelids and literally, spiritually speaking, hold them open. And there'll be a day when my eyes are open and his want to go asleep and I say, no. I love this. One writer put it this way. One church father said, he who chooses himself a spiritual mentor <laughs> is a fool. He who chooses to do life alone and expect to stay spiritually awake is a fool. Why? Why do we do all this? So you can stand before the Son of Man and hear these precious words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. It's all worth it. He is returning. He is true. He is faithful. He calls us to be in that marathon race of walking with, serving with, growing in Christ, and making an eternal impact. There is no greater there is no greater purpose in life. It is overwhelmingly over every other purpose that God has for us. So as we move into the so what this morning, I, uh, I want to read to you 
from Acts 7, 54 through 60, is a picture of Stephen, the first known Christian martyr. Because I think it's, it's a great picture for us. Uh, it's a way to go out of this world, whether it's the return of Christ or our own death. Listen to Stephen's words. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And those things that they heard were about Jesus Christ, that he was true, that he had risen from the dead, that he was God in the flesh. The religious leaders heard these things. The apostle Paul was Saul then. He was witnessing these things. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. There's the Son of Man. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him to death. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Man, you're talking about life change. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell asleep. So I ask you this morning, one specific question, one tangible life change that needs to take place in your life because of the certain return of Christ. Maybe put it this way, a powerful next step forward for you to grow in Christ. Think about that. Ask the Lord to give you that one thing this morning and go for it. Take a minute to do just that.